Welcome back inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is hour number two of the Jake Feinberg Show, coming to you live on Power Talk. And we were just treated to the uh, to an amazing hour of Facebook Live with the Director of African American Studies at the University of Arizona, Dr. Praise Zanenga. And now we get back to business here with my, uh, my people's history of music and uh, venturing into the rhythm sections of O Canada with one of the greatest bass players of all time, a guy who had to get out of Dodge to, dra- to dodge the Vietnam War, but he was cooking the groove with Terry Clark and, Don- and Jerry Hahn, who I interviewed and then lost the, the interview, and now he punished me by never doing an interview with me again. Uh, interviewed John Handy. Don Thompson was rooted in just swinging, burning music, learning the rudiments all the way from swing to bebop into post-bop and, and thereabouts. And he uh, has just continued to make a career playing uh, melodic music and playing the song. Don Thompson, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. Nice to be here. Or nice to be there, wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> You're here. We're talking worldwide now. Uh, and I am... Um, cool. It's an honor to connect with you, man. I, um, you know, I wanted to um, just ask you a little bit about um, the, the when you first some of the bass players that you were getting off on in the '50s that were essentially playing the deep bottom that allowed the bebop rhythms to expand the vocabulary of jazz. Okay, so when I first started to play. Uh, I actually did start, let me see, I started playing bass in about 1955, I suppose. That's, God, that sounds like an awful long time ago. How old were you at that Anyhow, time? Anyhow, yeah. I was 15. I was born in 1940. And I started playing bass when I was about 15. Yeah, that's about right. And the first guy that I really, really liked was Red Mitchell. And I had rec- recordings of Red Mitchell was, oh, two or three, I didn't have a ton of records, but... I, uh, the ones I liked the best, he always seemed to be the bass player. And then uh, other records I wound up getting with Ray Brown, and so I, they became my two favorite guys, Red Mitchell and Ray Brown, for different reasons. But they were, as far as I was concerned, they were the two guys. Can you, can you, explain, started, can you explain what the differences and what, what was appealing to, about both of them to you? Well, with Red Mitchell, I, I might have heard him first. I heard him on a, the first time I heard him play was on a record with Hampton Hawes. It was called Everybody Likes, I think it was Everybody Likes Hampton Hawes. Yeah, right, so, I know that. And that had a Gallagher on the cover, right? You know the one. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, he played this solo. He played this solo on I Remember You. And I just couldn't believe how pretty it was and how the beautiful his melodies were. Plus, he had a killer bass, and he had a beautiful sound, and it was really beautifully recorded, too. Contemporary records, they were, I mean, they were good, good, good recordings. And so I really liked the way he played. I liked the melodies in what he played, though. Because up until that time, I'd played, sort of fooled around. I mean, I played piano. I didn't know anything about it, but I did play the piano. So, And I played enough music that I knew that it was supposed to be melodic. And when I heard him play, I heard those beautiful melodies. I thought, oh, that's, 
this I really do like. And that's mainly, and plus he had a good groove too. I, I like that. But I, there was the melodies and the sound. I think he had that great sound. And then I heard Ray Brown, and it was another different sound, but it was also killer. And the groove was amazing. And it wasn't his solos. His solos, I don't remember anything at all about Ray Brown's solos, as a matter of fact. But what I remember is the bass lines were like Bach. They were so perfect and so melodic. that they, that's, that's what got me about Ray Brown. Plus the groove was just killer. And that sound, he had a beautiful sounding bass too. He had that old Italian bass. And so his sound got me. But like it was the melodic flow of his bass lines that really got me. And then I started hearing other bass players and... Not very many of them actually got me after that because I, they sort of, I was disappointed in most of the other bass players I heard. I really, I must say though, I really did like Percy Heath, and I don't remember him ever. I know he did play solos, but I don't remember anything at all about them. But again, it was the sound and the groove, and that time feeling, and I dig, and the melodic and the melodic flow of his playing because Percy Heath, his lines were, they were perfect too. They were, and, and there was other guys. Wendell Marshall was another fantastic bass player. And there was a few other guys, but mainly it was Red Mitchell first and Ray Brown after that, and then all those other guys. Were you listening to, like, records, like, on Tampa, like, from the uh, the Tampa label, like West Coast Bop with, with uh, West Coast Jazz with uh, with uh, guys like um, Mitchell, Red Mitchell and Bob, uh, there was a piano. There, I just got this killer uh, quartet album on Tampa from 55, Red Mitchell on bass, Envelson, Bob Envelson, I think. Oh, yeah, sure. That yeah. that stuff is, and then some cats playing piano and also uh, like accordion, but it's just burning, burning music, man. It's burning. Yeah, so I don't, I've never heard that. I've never heard that record, actually. Yeah. I don't know which one you're talking it's about. Called ref, it's, called, buy... it's called Reflections in Jazz. That's what it's called. Really? Yeah. I got to look it up. It's on, it's I, on, I it's yeah, it's on vinyl. Like, I'll, I, it's, it's burning stuff. And Red, and Red Mitchell, but, you know, are you, I guess from your, not that, not that you didn't hear it, but in hindsight, who, how do you, in your mind, how did you learn to find your individual voice? And what I mean by that is how, for, for peeps out there, for cats out there who are looking to not just lock the groove, but actually play melodically, how, how, how did you learn how to do that? Well, uh, that's a good question. I don't know, because I also played piano and vibes. And when you're playing piano, I mean, you, you play melodies. So, you know, it's part of the gig. And when you're playing vibes, it's, for me, anyhow, because I only play two mallets. So it was all melody. Because I, 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 I never did, I still don't play four mallets. Because I, I, I don't really like the sound of it, unless it's Gary Burton. I don't like the sound of it, basically. But I, I love the melodies, especially, like, Mill Jackson was one of my, well, still is, one of my heroes in life. And did I he only play two mallets? Play. Did he only play two mallets? Oh, yeah, he just played two mallets. Wow. And Mill Jackson, I mean, I played with him a few times, actually. We did a few gigs together, and he's like one of the geniuses of all time, as far as I'm concerned, on any instrument. <laughs> and so, so melodies, melodies was something I, you know, it's just something I did. And so when I started playing the bass, because I played vibes and piano both before, before I played the bass, and so when I started playing bass, I wanted to play melodies. It's just that it was so doggone hard because the bass is an impossibly difficult instrument to play. And so it's just what I was always faced with this thing where no matter, it seemed like almost anything I wanted to play, I couldn't play it on the bass. I could play it on the vibes, I could play it on the piano, but bass was just so hard. Hmm. 
I just couldn't, you know, it's just, I didn't deal with the instrument. It took me a long, long time to actually get enough together on the bass that I could actually play anything that I, that I really liked. I mean, did you, and it was, how, could you explain, was the, was the, is there something definitive in your playing professional career where you kind of got to a point where you realized it was not impossible to do that on the bass? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what first made me really think about it seriously because I was I played a concert one time and Terry Terry Clark was in the band with me. We played a concert one night in Vancouver and this I can't remember the year even, but it was at the cellar at the with, cellar. Oh no, this was a big concert. We opened up for Stan Getz, and and we we were the opening band for Stan Getz and his wow. quartet. And at wow. that time, it was it was Stan and Gene Tirico and Gary Burton and Joe Hunt, and that was the wow. band. And they, during the course of the evening, they played Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars. And when Getz played the melody, he played something in the melody. He just changed a, what two or three notes in the melody, but it was so beautiful the way he played it. I stuck in my mind, and as soon as I got home, I got my bass, and I thought, I bet I could do that. And I picked up my bass, and I, and I actually figured out where it was. And this was a long time ago. I hadn't been playing. I mean, I hadn't really played that much bass at that point, so I, didn't, I, wasn't, like, I wasn't a great bass player at all. But anyhow, I did figure out how to do it, and, and I realized, well, you know, it is possible to actually play a melody on the bass. And then I just started going from there and figuring out, well, if I want to play this, what do I have to do? <laughs> what do I have to work on to be able to play what I want to play? And I just sort of make little exercises and figured out, well, the thumb position is like an octave higher that's all and i figured out how to play some of what what i played down low i figured out how to play it up high and i never did have, actually have any lessons but i watched bass players i liked i really watched them carefully to find out how their hands worked and there was a great bass player that lived in vancouver when i was a kid and his name was paul ruland he, he's dead now he died a few years ago but he was a really terrific jazz bass player and a really good classical bass player too, and plus being a composer and arranger. So I used to go wherever he played. I just and I'd walk into the studios at CBC because you could do that in those days. And I'd just sit right beside him in the studio while he was playing, and watch his left hand and listen to his sound because he had a good bass. He had a French bass that really had a beautiful sound, and he had absolutely perfect technique. Talking to you, uh, yeah, go ahead. And I, I remember sitting in the studio while they were recording. You know, and, and and I'd talk to him because they'd stop playing, and I'd ask him questions, and he was a really nice guy. And everybody, they sort of didn't mind in those days. I mean, you could never do that now, because you'd have to go through security and a metal detector and everything else to get in the room. But now, in those days, you could just walk in off the street, and I, they knew who I was. So they'd say, <laughs> oh, yeah, go on in. And so I'd be sitting right, I'd get a chair, and I'd sit right beside him in the studio. And he, you know, one time they were playing a piece of George Russell's, and I was sitting there listening to him, and I thought, man, that is the greatest bass line, but it's so bizarre. And he and he said, oh, it's 12-tone, that's why. And he, he had a written-out 12-tone bass line, and he played it for me and explained to me how 12-tone music works and how once you play this, see, you can't play it until you've played all the other notes and all that stuff. And then he'd play the bass line, and I'd listen to it. And another time, he'd, he had a blues that he'd written for the band. It was about a 12-piece band. And the whole first chorus he played by himself, up in the thumb position, in four-note chords, sounded like a classical guitar. Talking and I sat there listening to him. Go ahead. No, really. Going. I mean, he actually, he did that. And it was like he was demonstrating the bass to me. And at this time, I'd 
I mean, this is about 1962, maybe. And he's demonstrating what he could do on the bass just by playing this blues and four-note chords, just like it sounded like a classical guitar playing. And and he was a huge inspiration to me. And so I, whenever a good bass player, Freddie Schreiber is another bass player that you probably have heard of. And that, if you have yeah, Freddie Schreiber... Was, is, he still, is he still with us? Oh, no, Freddie died years and years ago. But he was a phenomenal bass player, and he used to come to Vancouver, and I'd watch him like he was a hawk. I mean, I I just watch his hands, his left hand especially, because he could really play. And like, if you haven't got any recordings, you could find them, because he made one really good record with Cal Chaders' band, the Black Hawk, I think, in San Francisco. But Freddie was a great bass player. He really was. And if he hadn't died, he would have been one of those legendary people like Scott LaFaro and all the other guys, because he was at that level. That's how good he was. You know, um, anyhow, Freddie, I, and so I got to know Freddie pretty well, and I and I played with him a couple of times. And again, that's how that's basically the guys I would listen to, and then I would just try and figure out now how the heck am I going to play what I want to play? You know, I just I wanted to um, read you this this quote. I, I've done been doing my radio show for six years now, uh, and I interviewed John Handy back in April of two thousand and eleven. This is what he said. Uh-huh. Bobby Hutcherson joined my band in January 67. He said he really liked my band because we had done this version of Spanish Lady. He also heard us Uh playing a command performance in 1966 down in Watts. I was reluctant to go because because our band was (laughs) three-fifths Caucasian and the riots were going on. We were in New York when Bobby joined us. Don Thompson, Terry Clark were Canadian, and this was during the Vietnam War. They had to get out of here because they they would have been drafted. Thompson played bass. Right. Thompson played bass with us until we went back to California. When we got back, that's when Bobby introduced me to Albert Stinson. Now, explain why you decided to even come to San Francisco. What gig did you have waiting for you when you left Canada to come down here to begin with? Sure, and we worked with them. Terry and I played with them a couple of times in Vancouver. And like the first time he came up, it was really bizarre because I was supposed to play piano the first time. I'm sorry, you, you, your, your phone cut out when you... Who was the person? I didn't hear oh. you. Oh, no, the first time John came to Vancouver. Oh, John Handy, got I, it, okay. I, yeah, I played, I piano. played piano. My God. Yeah, because I had a piano trio, and we, the three of us were booked just to play, to back up this artist from the United States. It was one of those kind of things, a visiting artist in the local rhythm section. And the way, what happened is the, the, the bass player, who was a really good bass player, too, but he was a student. He was in university. And after about two nights, the stress of working at night and trying to get through school and everything, and plus the music was really super hard. Anyhow, he got sick, and he couldn't come in. He, he just basically quit. And so I told John, well, why don't I just play bass for the rest of the gig, <laughs> and we can just do it as a, a piano or a pianoless band, a bass and drums. Because, and at that point, I, was, I, wasn't a, I was, really wasn't a very good piano player. I mean, I was just sort of... A, a high-ranking amateur, if you like. And John's music was literally light years beyond what I really understood. Because the day he came on the first gig, it was the day after Mingus at Monterey. That's right. He had just come from that. So it was like this daunting he, the, thing. Yeah, there, it, was, it was the very next day. And that's all he could talk about. He came in, bam, we tore it up at Mendoroy last night, and he had reviews and the pictures, and I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> so anyhow, after about two nights... I wound up playing bass, and we did the whole gig with just saxophone, bass, and drums. And I actually got through it pretty well on bass, because I, I could play well enough on the bass. And I didn't have to voice all those chords that I didn't know, and solo on all those changes. 
and read all those funny parts. So I, but I got through it good enough on bass that the next time John came back to town, of course, he had Freddie Red playing piano and Michael White came up playing violin, and that's when the band sort of started. Wow, but Freddie! Then, uh, by the way, is Freddie Red still with us? I believe he is. Yeah, I, I, I need to. I because I do it. I don't know that. That is the most. Can you uh, explain? I, I remember uh, Terry Clark. Terry, in my interview with Terry, he talked about. Um, the rhythm section of Mingus and Danny Richmond and how it was just a powerful, swinging, burning rhythm section. And, oh, it was amazing. You know, yeah, and, and, it and, really was. And so I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the dynamics of those amazing rhythm sections of that time that Paul Chambers uh, and, and Elvin or, you know, it could have been you and Terry Clark, but... You know, ultimately, where was the vocabulary of that music? I know you, the music might have been light years ahead of where you were at that time, but you were able to sweat, you were able to hang in there. What, what was the vocabulary they were working? I interviewed Bobby before he, Bobby Hutchinson before he left, and he said him and Lloyd, Charles Lloyd, they were really experimenting off of the traditional blues, one, four, five, what, the blues scale. But I, I wanted you to talk about that whole amalgam of music at that time why it was so burning people call it post-bop but you were playing bass and i just wanted you to riff on that yeah well let me see uh i never actually thought about it all that much frankly at the time i was just trying trying to figure out how to get through john's music and uh because that really was it what made it what made it what made it progressive at that time well john's music well he's he's his musical roots are they were way beyond what most of the guys were playing, and his music was really advanced. And I mean, he, we we wound up doing all kinds of stuff that most of the other bands actually weren't doing. We played free free music that was actually, you know, sound more like it was coming out of Stravinsky than anything else. Wow. Sometimes, wow, or even different different composer. We at one point in time, we actually <laughs> I don't know if Terry told you this, but Terry and I were driving to a rehearsal one time at John's house. And we put on, he put on the radio, and there was a concert, a live recording of a concert of a cello concerto by Tendereski. And we, we listened to that in the car. And and it was so amazing. When It was still going when we got to John's house. And then we turned on the radio in John's house, and we listened to the rest of the whole rest of the concert. And there was other music besides Tendereski. There was a piece by Ligeti. And after the after we heard that stuff, then we had the rehearsal, and we had this one piece that John had written that was, it was all open form, free improvising. And that, listening to that music completely changed the way we all played. We all went in, like, it was just like a, a huge jump up from what we'd been doing before, just after hearing that music of Pendereski's and the, and the other pieces on the program. Is there, a way, to, is there a way to talk about where you were, what you were doing before, as opposed to maybe the... I don't want to. Say, I don't want to say symphonic nature of the of the, what was the expansion from where you were to after that that rehearsal. Oh, it's just I don't. I can't. It's hard to tell you that. But like I know that it just made us aware of things that we'd never even dreamt of before. Uh, do you know the music of your? You know the. the it's not my. Music? No, it's definitely not my bag at all. But I'm just. Yeah, this is fascinating well, stuff. It's amazing, actually. And so can that, you tell me what it is, by the way? I mean, just for the, just tell me the. Oh, I can't. But like Pendereski, I can I could never attempt to even analyze what he does or even talking about it. But 
But what era? What what era? What era was he though? Well, he, he was. I think I can't remember when he died. It wasn't that long ago. I don't okay, suppose. so he was. He was. A, he was a. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is. Oh, he's. Oh, he's super modern. I mean, he. Yeah, mo- I got. It. I dig. I dig. Yeah, he's yeah. super modern. I mean, his music sounds like almost. It almost sounds improvised. In fact, I thought it was. Right. But if you look at his scores, I mean, the scores like he writes all you know in quarter tones and all that kind of stuff. Wow. It's really totally out, but absolutely beautiful. It's really amazingly beautiful music. But it's really outward bound, and like when I heard that, I thought, well, wait, we could probably play like that, and because we all were sort of playing out anyhow. And I, but I have to say, there was another person that made a huge impact on the music for just a short time, and that's a guitar player called Sonny Greenwich. I do not know that because Son- well, Sonny played in the band after when Jerry Hunt quit. Sonny Greenwich is the guitar player that replaced him. And if you haven't heard Sonny, and John, I don't think John would argue with me too much about this. I don't think anybody ever played any better than Sonny Greenwich. I mean, Sonny Greenwich doesn't play anymore. He got had a couple of heart attacks, and he hasn't played for quite a few years. But he was a fantastic jazz guitar player. And he had a, a spirit in his playing that is so reminiscent of John Coltrane that he could literally bring a room to tears just in, with his playing. And in the Village Vanguard, he was in the band with Bobby Hutcherson. And when we played in the Vanguard, Sonny would routinely get standing ovations for his solos. That's how good he was. And and it was a kind of playing that nobody had ever heard before. Absolutely original and absolutely beautiful. And he had a he made a big difference to the band too, because and along with all that, he had a, a swing feel that was just scary. I mean, he really had a groove. So that was another guy that really made a huge impact. And even though he was only there just for a few months, he he didn't stay in the band for very long. So you come down to San Francisco after the gigs with Handy, and then uh-huh. be, did you were you immersed at all with some of the uh, st- anything that was going on at Mills College? Uh, some of these uh, these classical composers like Terry Riley and 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 uh, I don't know who else was down there, but it was just like this incredible music concrete was going on. I'm just trying to think about. Oh yeah, there was. Can you talk about any? No, I. Yeah. Well, we the problem was we didn't have any time to do stuff like that. We were so busy with John because like in those days, like well, we had a steady gig for one thing, which is unbelievable. But we worked in a club, a steady gig six nights a week for about five or six months. And so that doesn't leave very much time. Plus, with John, we rehearsed virtually every day. And so, like, when you rehearse every day and you play every night, there's no time for very much else. And so oh, can you just talk about what was going on around you, what was inspiring to you? Well, the, there were some musicians in town that were... There was really some good musicians around, and and my, well, Denny Zeitlin was in San Francisco, and he's a giant musician well, I've, interviewed Denny, I've, I've interviewed Denny twice yeah you know, he played at the Trident yeah, why, so why don't you, you know, talk about the that's right. yeah go ahead no well these are the guys that I was that I was seriously influenced by Denny and Charlie Hayden of course was playing with him and so Charlie was a person I really liked there was another bass player called Raphael Garrett and Raphael's been dead for quite a long time but Raphael I really liked him he was a I really liked him as a person and I really liked his playing too he he did all kinds of stuff that he you know, he actually, I spent time with him. He taught me stuff about bass and playing that I just really didn't know and never understand. But I don't, do you know who he is? Have you heard that name? No, but I'm curious about the Zeitlin. Well, his name, 
I don't. I'm not, you know the, the 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 unsung cats. I, I dig. It's all good. I'm just curious about the mm-hmm. the the the, the Zeitlin and Hayden uh, fusion that you were inspired by. I mean, if you could put that into uh, what they were doing, because I mean that music. I, I've listened to that music. Uh, Fred Marshall was another cat. Um, there were. Oh, Fred! I loved Fred. Can you talk like, about Fred Marshall know, because he created his own instrument? I think the Megatar. He he was brilliant. He was a beautiful bass player and an incredibly creative, creative guy. A really good composer too. And I, he was one of my. He was probably, probably my favorite bass player there at that time. And I, I, I knew Fred enough to really like him too. And he is another guy that showed me all kinds of neat stuff about playing. And and that that band, they had that band with Noel Jukes. And I don't know if you know Noel. He's a beautiful. I've interviewed Noel. You know, I've interviewed them all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. So you know all these guys. Yeah, well, I know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm 30. I'm 39, but I've been woodshedding for six years, so I've interviewed all these mm-hmm. cats. And what I, I'm really just, yeah, I get, I dig that you were busy with John, but I want you to talk about it specifically from that 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 mid 60s. The, uh, the, the there was this this incredible amount of growth in, in you know there was a lot of progressive classical music going. On. I wanted you to talk mm-hmm. about some of the stuff that you might have witnessed or that you were inspired by because. Uh, and music concrete too, because that was stuff that Roger Kellaway was working on on the East Coast with Mel Lewis and Richard Davis. Oh yeah, yeah, but I didn't I didn't know anything about that at the time. See, like I we were pretty insulated from everything, and so like my my main thing when I was there was just to play John's music, and I did listen to other guys, but I didn't go out of my way. But when guys would come to town, you know, I would I would make a point to hear them, and I heard Coltrane a few times. And, you know, like he came twice while I was living there, and so I heard him both times, and that was, I mean, nothing, I don't think has ever affected me much more than that. Why? Because, like, it was just the power in him, the power and that beautiful spirit in John and his playing that just, it's hard to describe, but I mean, other people will probably tell you the same thing. But there was just something about him and, his, and the way he was and the way he played it was absolutely irresistible to me. And Elvin, he and Elvin, the same thing. And that whole band, I heard the band with McCoy and, and Elvin and Jimmy Garrison. And then I heard the band later when, when it was Rashid Ali and, and actually Raphael Garrett, the guy, he was playing with them. And right. A bunch of different guys at that point. All kinds of guys played with them after that. But I, the band with Elvin and McCoy, and I only heard them play that one time. But it was... It was an amazing Was it at the workshop? Was, or was it at the workshop? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, That's when, the time Terry played with him, actually, that night. Terry, yeah. Terry, Terry, because Elvin got thrown in jail or something? What happened? Oh, no. No, Terry, he just sat in. John asked both of us to sit in, if we wanted to sit in. And Terry Terry sat in and played a set with Train. And, and But I couldn't play Jimmy's bass. I, I just... I just on the break. I mean, before even I just talked to Jimmy, and I, I his bass was set up in a way that I couldn't even hold the strings on. They were so high, so I didn't want to play, and I didn't. I didn't, you know. But Terry played a set with him because Train also he was this super gentle, super nice person. You know, I mean, he was so nice and friendly, and the fact that he he just backed both of us if we'd like to sit in. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Could, so it was, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, in, uh, I've interviewed Jimmy Cobb and people that played with Train mm-hmm. when he was starting sort of that, you know, going off the 12-tone scale and listening to a lot of Indian music and playing a lot of modal jazz. And a lot of, a lot of um, sometimes women would stand up in the audience and say, make him stop, make him stop. And actually a lot of white journalists coined his music at that time 
hate music. And well, that's nonsense. Well, I want that's you to. So, but I nonsense. no. But and what I what I'm saying is this: I hope that I wouldn't have been one of those journalists. But I'm asking you: Why was that wail, that cry, that what he was channeling? Why was it misunderstood? Because you looked at it as the most powerful, beautiful thing, and yet when you read the historical accounts of it, it didn't go over very well. It sometimes. Well. It, yeah, okay. It's, this is a dangerous topic, if you want to know. That's what my it's show is, man. I mean, that's what I've been well, doing for six well, years. Well, first of all, the band with McCoy, that never happened with the band with McCoy and Elvin. I'm sure. I can't imagine that ever happening because even when they were playing really, really out, there was, I can't imagine anybody ever saying, make them stop. Well, Jimmy Cobb said that, that so I mean, that, that that went down. And really? That was... With Elvin Jones and McCoy Tyner? I can't imagine No, no, that. Jimmy Cobb was because... on drums. Jimmy Cobb was on drums. It was it was before, uh, you know, train... Oh, this was a long time before. It was oh, er, er, oh, that's in the early 60s, sound. early 60s. Oh, okay. See, I never heard that band. But I, I never heard Train Live until Elvin and McCoy were playing with them. Right. But even so, that just doesn't make sense to me. And well, so if you listen to those that, albums, I mean, even today, I'm talking to a friend of mine and, you know, younger cat. And, you know, some of that music is, it, 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 yeah, it takes a while to get your ear around. And what I'm trying to get at is, I don't want to make it a dangerous subject, but what made it so visceral? How come you felt it more than you heard it? And how come it, you know, that's the point. Oh, I didn't, I don't think I did feel it more than I heard it. I heard it too. I mean, I could hear, you know, and at that point, I... Train didn't mystify me like musically. What he was doing wasn't that mystifying. So I did. I could hear it. I could understand it. I could relate to it. But it was. But it was way more than that because there was a feeling that I just can't define. I mean, but all I know is that when, whenever he played, here, here's my. I've described it this way a couple of other times. But when Train played, and I'm not convinced that the band always knew what the heck to do with him. I'm not the Elvin band. But the band afterwards, I don't think they really knew what he was trying to do or how to play with him. But when when he played, the, it was like the sun was always shining. Hmm. But when he would stop, it would be like it would cloud over sometimes and get really dark. But Lone Train himself, I never heard him play in anything that just didn't sound beautiful to me on any, any of the records or any of the bands or anything. And I, I don't know why that is. But there was something in him that was, he was such a gentle, beautiful person to me, just in the couple of meetings that I had with him, that every, and his music just sounded that like that to me, as far as I was concerned. I didn't hear any anger or hate or anything. I just heard it, it just sounded beautiful to me all the time. Yeah, well, it was clearly, it's documented there in the early 60s, especially, that uh, he took a lot of flack for actually branching off. And, uh, you know, Miles was bored to death of, of bebop and, you know, post-bop. And so that's where he went off into sort of his own mm -hmm. realm. But I'm just saying, like, oh, in, you know, in general, <laughs> though, I wanted to ask you about, um, because, I mean, there were... <laughs> You know, I've talked to some of the Merry Pranksters for the Ken Kesey's bunch, and they would wind up at the Jazz Workshop in '61, and Dizzy mm. and and Rasan were playing psychedelic jazz. It wasn't bebop, it wasn't post bop, mm. it was just totally psychedelic. And there are other cats from Jeff, you know, from uh, the original Jefferson Airplane who, you know, trained the the horn never. I mean, it's funny you talk about that sun, you know, the sun is shining kind of uh, analogy because. Uh, Marty Ballin from the Jefferson Airplane was like, I saw a train one time. He went to the went, he went over to this urinal which was on the side of the stage or you know the bathroom. Mm -hmm. he, he took a piss and he was his, he was still playing his horn. 
He went to the he went to the bar and the horn never left his mouth. <laughs> it never left well, his mouth. Well, I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you what it was like the first time I heard Train play. Okay. Yeah. I went early to the club. It was a matinee in the afternoon. I, I guess probably on Sunday they had or Saturday. Maybe it was Saturday they had an afternoon matinee. So the matinee is going to start at four o'clock. So John Handy's wife Nancy, the two of us, went down to the club early because we knew that it was going to be packed so we went down an hour and a half before and of course when we got there there wasn't anybody so we just sat right down in the front right beside right in front of the stage i could touch the piano if i stood up that's how close we were but already train was practicing and we could hear him in the band room behind the stage in the workshop the band room was right behind the stage we could hear him practicing and he just played and played and played and played and he never stopped playing (laughs) until exactly four o'clock and none of the other guys were even there yet so at a four o'clock he came walking out and he's still playing and he just walked out and he was playing by himself on the stage now and finally mccoy came in and came up to the piano and started to play with him and they were playing naima and they played naima for oh quite a while before jimmy and elvin showed up and then they all played naima for about the next half an hour and then but he had been playing for god knows how long before we came in the and it was yeah so I mean, and was that and was that amazing? Yeah, I mean, was that that was something that you had never really witnessed? Before. Well, I mean, no, it's just clear that like the what he did is he played the saxophone and and the music was it was he was obsessed with it. He was clearly obsessed with the music, and he just that's what he did. He just played all the time. And when we were there, he never stopped. Like he say, he just played all the time. But then later, when the band was Rashid. He, he didn't play all the time because he had all these guys sitting in. Because he was, that's the other problem. He was such a lovely guy that he just would ask guys to sit in. When I, he had two or three bass players playing on the stage with him, with Rashid and, and his wife was playing piano and, all, and Little Rock was playing tenor and all that. Anyhow, he had two or three bass players. And when, when they took a break, he asked me if I wanted to get my bass and play. <laughs> and I looked up and I said, you already got three guys playing bass. And so I didn't. You know, I just... I didn't. I couldn't imagine what I would how I could contribute anything. So I, I said, "Oh no, thanks," and I didn't play. But but he would ask everybody, and every, and most of the guys. I mean, there'd be tons of horn players sitting in and play, and then. But meanwhile, they none of them were playing all that much, and then so then that's when it was like a big mess. But then every then Train would finally stand up and he'd play and it would just be so beautiful you couldn't stand it. But then he and then he wouldn't play very long there because there was all these other guys. And then when they then when he stopped, it would just turn into all that other stuff. And so and at that point the music wasn't I didn't like it very much. But whenever he actually played himself, it was amazingly beautiful. Uh, we're talking to Don Thompson and I I'm just so glad I was able to extract that memory from him. Um, uh, was it a lesson in true democracy? I mean, did it get too democratic later on? Is that what you're kind of getting at? I mean, where there were two... Well, I, that's so funny. I never would have thought of it like that, but maybe maybe he was just too nice. He was too nice. Now, so, I mean, the, the, the truth is that, um, you know, uh, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, if you could your concept of you know the ultimately how people how younger cats uh if they were 
looking to unplug. There's such a saturation of material on YouTube. There are, Lord knows, there are probably music schools now with Don Thompson bass books. I don't know that for a fact, but Pat Martino books. God, I hope not. I mean, here's the point is that these, I want you to talk about the street scholar mentality of learning your craft. That's it. Because you guys, as far as I'm concerned, my generation and my daughter's generations, I mean, it is a pay-to-play mentality. The idea, not necessarily, oh, yeah. in, not necessarily in Canada per se, but you know, in this country, it is now, Dizzy Gillespie was looked at, maybe wasn't paid, but he was looked at in the same way as a lawyer or a doctor was, uh, as a musician, okay? And you had gigs that put people were paid for those gigs, and maybe they were paid in junk, but it didn't matter. The point is there were places to play. I want you to just talk about that street scholar mentality because that's where all the individual sound came from, and that's why you can't tell who anybody is today because it's just a chop shop now. Well, they all study out of the same books. They all study with, you know, you put 40 saxophone players in a room with a teacher, and he says, okay, get out of the book and turn to page 46, and we're going to work on that today. And so you get all the cats playing the same things. I don't know. The schools probably do more harm than they do good. The best I think is the best the school can do is actually not screw up the students and actually inspire them to figure out something for themselves. Because one thing I do know that anything, almost everything I can do that's any good is stuff I've figured out myself. What can you give an and example? I, well, just the, just the things I know about how to play melodies on the bass. I've spent hundreds of hours, literally, and I still do, on the bass, figuring out how I can play a melody that doesn't sound like a bass solo, for instance. But I, the last thing I ever want to hear a bass player play is a bass solo. I dig. You know, like, nobody would ever talk about Charlie Parker and say, man, what a great alto solo. <laughs> you know, and most people wouldn't <laughs> listen to Art Tatum and say, man, this guy's a great piano, that's a great piano solo by Art Tatum, or a great piano solo by Keith Jarrett. Keith's one of my heroes, incidentally. I must say that he's one of my favorite people in the world. And, but nobody would ever say that. Boy, Keith Jarrett played a killer piano solo. But like too many bass players, they can't talk about bass solos. I mean, Scott LaFaro's bass solos. Well, I really like Scott LaFaro, too. But like I don't want to sound like a bass player. I just want to play music. And so how can I play something that doesn't sound like a bass, but just sounds like music? So somebody listening to it, hey, that's a nice solo. They won't say, wow, this guy played a good bass solo there. Well, let's see. If, I, hear bass solos, yeah. I hear bass solos all the time. I mean, do you feel you know, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, to me, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. well, no, I dig. I mean, this is really cool. I mean, uh, let's take a listen to, to this music and see if there's any relevance to what you were just talking about, okay? Thank you. 
on the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you by the Pretzinger Agency of Allstate Insurance, the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona, and uh, we thank them for their support so we can play never-ending bone solos like that for Don Thompson. <laughs> uh, that, I, mean, I mean, that's the point, is that, can you talk about how you, you know, as a bass player, have to play the song in that sense because there were so many ideas being sequenced by Rosalino. That wasn't a one-minute, two-minute solo. That thing was stretching out. It's still going. How did you... And, you know, yeah. I, oh, look, I, but the thing is, uh, here's, this is, it's relevant to what I was talking about because Frank Rosalino didn't play trombone solos either. I mean, he just played solos. He, he was, But the thing about Frank is, first of all, he could play anything on the horn. I mean, he had more chaps than anybody. But also, he knew the music so well, and it was so easy for him that he could play he could play that tune all day until he actually had to take a break to get something to eat or something, because he never <laughs> ever would run out of things to play because it was so he just knew it so well. And I think the problem, like we were talking earlier about the the problem with the young guys in school, because like I you know most of the guys I know that are teaching, and I, I had the same problem when I was teaching. I've stopped now, but when I had taught for a long time, it's you can't get students interested in learning tunes. They just don't seem to want to be tr take the trouble to learn a tune. But with Frank, I mean, he'd been playing. I thought about you probably for the last forty years, and so you, you know he knew he knew that tune backwards. It wouldn't matter what key was in there, if it was faster or slower. It just wouldn't make any difference because he could he really knew the tune. How did you do? You feel so, like have you feel like having a deep bag of songs? I I dig. I mean, I think a lot of younger cats don't have a deep bag, and they don't go back far enough. But being that you had a deep bag, you you were able to play the song, and you didn't oh, sure. you didn't need to have to do a bass solo. I mean, you just you were playing the song. I don't know if I played a bass solo on that track or not. I just can't remember. But it wouldn't matter because you know. No, we just play the song. I mean, that's basically what it is. But you you don't just play the song, because you and the base the responsibility of the bass player is to to keep make the music succeed. Basically, I mean, everything else you know, nothing else is more important than that. The music has to succeed, and the bass player almost more than anybody else can either make it sound good or completely demolish it. And so, like for me, it's just a, it's just a constant question of what's the best note to play right now 
what's the best thing to do right now? Because you listen to everything that's going on, and then you take you say, well, I know the tune, I know what key we're in, and I know this tune. Now, what's the best thing to do right this minute to make this thing work? And it's always that's the that's the biggest issue. Nothing else really is any more important than that. But like for the guys, if you don't know the tune, then you're sunk. And most of the young guys I I know, I mean they're they're actually learning tunes here because I mean there's some really good musicians in Toronto, and like what in Toronto, it's it's something that you're expected to be able to do is to play tunes, and so they're actually getting pretty good. Some of the young guys are actually getting really good, but an awful lot of them they just don't care. They say, well hell I, you know I just got my degree, and I <laughs> I Terry I don't know if Terry Clark would have told you this. Yeah. But Go ahead. One time. No, check this out. One time, Terry Clark called me. He says, "I got to go. I want to call you for a gig," and the gig was at a club where they're going to do a, a surprise birthday party for a, a guy that was a disc jockey on the radio. And so Terry hires me to play piano, and he hires a couple of his students from the where he's teaching, a bass player and a saxophone player. And so we're all hanging out on stage. And there, there's somebody's over at the door waiting for this cat to get out of the cab so we can play happy birthday as soon as he walks in. And so the, they, they finally we're waiting, and the guy comes around. He's here. The cab's just pulled up. Get ready. And so I said, okay, you guys, here's what we're going to do. Happy birthday. We're going to start in F, and we're going to go through the cycle, one chorus each, until we get back to F again. And so the door opens, and the guy comes in, and I go, one, two, three, four, and I count it off, and the bass player and the saxophone player didn't know happy birthday they wow. couldn't play it and it was the screw-up of the century because like here this is a surprise birthday thing and the guest of honor shows up and the two guys don't know happy birthday it's kind but of a, then after yeah. the, they were it was very embarrassing actually terry was he was not happy and when it was over, when that was finished finally we said okay let's play some tunes and so then we played invitation and they tore it up they nailed it. And then we played a couple of other things, probably including Giant Steps. They sounded great. But Happy Birthday, they did not know. What is that? Uh, that's yeah. Because they just hadn't, it never occurred to them to learn it. And But at least they knew a few tunes. But a lot of the guys, they don't know any tunes. They show up for the gig and they, and they all get out their iPad and then they say, okay, what do you want to play? And they say, well, let's play, what is this thing called? And they say, well, wait a minute. And then they get the, the chords on their iPad, and they put it on the music stand, and they play the changes to what is this thing called love. They don't know the melody, but they got the chords. And so that's what they do. And um, they, don't, they just don't, yeah. they don't go to the trouble to actually learn the tune. Did you, can you talk about, I mean, I'm doing it, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, I, I'm actually uh, producing a film documentary on Stan Getz, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about the stone genius of Bird gets chet baker and a whole host of others who basically had just had natural gifts and they were not they could play every song in every key and so they understood mm -hmm. their entire instrument and there was none of this fid fidgeting around with trying to get you know this that and on the stage with the technology and it was just it was the feel can you talk about the stone genius of those street scholars I don't know how it works, you know, and this is a good question because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Mm -hmm. How does Charlie Parker, where does somebody like Charlie Parker come come from? Or Stan Getz, <laughs> because there's another guy. Right. I never worked with, I worked with Getz only 
once, I guess. When, wait, I'm sorry, can you, then, can you identify when you worked with him? Tell me about when you worked with him. We did, a tele, we did a television show together in about 1963 or 64, something like that, I guess. And I never played with him again after that. I had a chance to play with him, but it never happened. And then I only met him off and on a few times. So I didn't, I didn't know Sam, and I never ever met Chet Baker. And I never heard him play live. So I don't know much about Chet Baker. But Charlie Parker I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I've got tons and tons of records, which I've heard many, many times. So I mean, But even so, where does that genius come from is a good question. But the, again, with Charlie Parker, I have to say that it's a feeling that gets me because there's lots of alto players that can really play, but they don't have the same feeling, and so they don't get me the same way. Sonny Stitt sounds a lot like Charlie Parker a lot of times, and when you listen, like he played a lot of the same stuff, and he's, he sounds fantastic, but I don't feel the same way I do when I listen to Charlie Parker. When I hear Charlie Parker play Just Friends, or when I hear him play Old Folks, and I hear that thing he plays going into the bridge of Old Folks, I just think, oh, jeez, that's so beautiful, I can't stand it. <laughs> and in fact, the thing on Old Folks is so amazing that I actually learned that on the bass. And, the, and I've never done that with very many people. I've, there's a couple of things that Charlie Parker played that I actually learned on the bass. I mean, in his solos, just phrases. And they did the same thing with John Coltrane. And like I said, I did the same thing with Stan Getz on that tune because I just had to play it. It was so pretty. And that doesn't happen with me very, with very many people. Sonny Greenwich, the guitar player I was talking about, he's one of those guys. He can, he can basically, and he's totally self-taught. Yeah, no, most of the time he doesn't know what key he's playing in. But you can't call a tune in any key that he can't play. It just doesn't matter because he's got that kind of mind and that kind of genius that is, is completely self-taught, though. He's never had a lesson in anything, guitar, music, or anything. Wow. But I, it's hard to imagine where it comes from. And Sonny, again, it's a feeling. And John Handy, I'm sure he would tell you the same thing because John, Sonny's got a feeling nobody else has got. And the part of the I've problem is the, the, the stifling of the culture uh, and the... Um, the lack of, you just made a very, very salient point there. Um, but it, it, it's the idea of, you know, when you strip this, the human soul out of music and you're copying and pasting this guitar solo into this. And, um, you know, there was a brotherhood, a, there was a community, there was a communal feeling and um, it was a tribe. And when you strip away that humanity and it becomes digital, the music becomes very sterile. And then people, younger yeah. cats like my daughters, they they don't know what it what really what it means to feel the music they can't feel it because there's no humanity in it mm. that's part of the crisis that's true. yeah you know and uh, well, there are some go there, ahead. there are some young guys that i hear every now and then i hear some a, a younger player well actually for me anybody under 50 anybody under 60 is a younger <laughs> player but but like i i do hear i do hear guys that i do like i must say there are some guys around i'm not going to go into naming them but i do hear guys every now and then i like but most of my old most of my People I like are over 70 years old. Even, the, you know, well, Keith Jarrett, you know, obviously, in you know, Chicory and, and Herbie, just to name some piano players. And then Wayne Shorter, you know, people, those are the cats I really like. And I don't hear very many of the young guys that get me the way those guys. I love Wayne Shorter, incidentally. I mean, he's, he's a person I really, really do like. And I really like Joe Henderson, too. I mean, he was another cat I really liked. Yeah. I was lucky enough to play with him one time. You know, I want to. I want to. No, I want to say this: we, we have to pick up and do part two. We have a lot more to do. But I actually, my show is out of time now. We just we cooked through an hour here. 
Um, wow. Yeah, we, really? Yeah. yeah <laughs> we, 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 we've been cooking for 54 minutes approximately. And I, I had a ball. And uh, But let's let's reach, I'll, I'll reach out to you this weekend. We'll set up a time to do part two. I love – I've interviewed Chuck Rainey and Spider Webb, Bernard Purdy, uh, Steve Gadd, all the rhythm sections. I'm not even doing justice, all the section cats. And to be able mm-hmm. to talk to you and Terry as the one of the consummate, you know, s- melodic rhythm sections of, of Canada just – continues to enrich myself and uh and like i said i mean you know i've interviewed everybody from noel jukes to jerry grinelli to mike clark to, to Gar- everybody so now you're part of it and uh i really had a ball man well, I, I really can't thank you it's enough. too bad you couldn't talk to sonny but sonny greenish doesn't answer the phone he just doesn't answer the phone but sonny greenish is the most fascinating person and you'd really like well to talk i mean to him. well do you talk to yeah. him he doesn't answer your calls I but no I but I email him and like we, <laughs> we do that, but Sonny Greenwich is is a is a one of a kind. Yeah, well, no, we'll, really we'll, we'll try to and put it together. If you go on you, go on YouTube and look up Sonny Greenwich time space. Much love, Mr. Thompson. We'll we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Thank you, my All friend. Right. Yep. Bye bye. Yep. Bye bye then. Just a legendary day here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Heard from Doctor Praise Zanenga. And uh, what an enlightening experience that was. And then just a, a titanic bass player in his own right. Don Thompson, Canadian cat, and uh, well accomplished. Uh, we'll be back next week with the Jake Feinberg Show. More editions, more fun. Until then, we're going to listen into the PTSD show. And uh, have a great day. Peace. Comedy Alive on Power Talk. Please go to our website.